A very warm welcome to all our listeners on Behind the Deal, a new podcast series that explores the intricacies of venture capital from the very best with co-hosts Ashish and Vishnu Priya. Today with us we have Sasha Mirchandani, managing director and founder of K Capital and co-founder of Mumbai Angels. Previously he was at Blue Run Ventures as managing director for India Operations. Thank you so much Sasha for joining us at Behind the Deal it's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here folks. Thank you so much for the invite. So Sasha welcome to Behind the Deal. In between joining Merck Technologies as an associate and founding Immerkes Technologies which was a voice based knowledge processing outsourcing company. You founded Cocoon Ventures which is seldom spoken about. Uh this was perhaps your first stint with investing. Could you please tell us a little more about this? So this is around the time uh, 2001 uh, Vishnupriya and I was still working in my family business Merck Electronics and uh, I was looking at the landscape in India and I realized that in India at that point if you were born into a family business you know you were lucky because the second generation came along and then the third generation came along but it was very very difficult to access any sort of capital my own father had started his business by borrowing 4 lakhs from someone and that was in 1981 and now we're talking about you know 2001 20 years later and we were still in that same position in our country so i felt something's got to be done and uh, i convinced my father to give me some money from his balance sheet in merck electronics to invest in a young tech company and uh, we made that investment within maybe 3 months of making the investment my father and uncle added new members to the board of directors and the new board said hey listen you're a listed tv manufacturer you should not be making technology investments we don't see a synergy it was a fair argument i tried to convince them that it made sense but uh, my uh, two bits didn't count and therefore i had to now do something about this investment i tried to see if there's some other vcs interested in you know buying a stake in this company or buying out our stake but there were pretty much no vc and i genuinely really liked the entrepreneur and really liked the opportunity so that's how i created cocoon ventures which is now basically called olmo capital it's the same fund it just changed the name and we said okay we'll buy the shares out from the company from merk and it became my first investment this particular one so what attracted you towards investments ashan first place uh, you started uh, um, from transitioning from seed investing at mumbai angels to setting up an early stage fund what so two parts what attracted you towards investment in journal and what was the reason from transitioning from mumbai angel to starting your own fund so i think first is what attracted me was i felt that there was just an incredible opportunity in 2001 and when i looked around the landscape to check what was happening i was amazed that there was pretty much no one doing it and i said hold on there's got to be thousands and thousands of smart people in this country if not millions and there's no access to capital Uh, so what do I do? And that's how I got into investing. And so between 2002 and 4, I made investments through Cocoon, which is now called Olmo, and uh, we made a nice exit as well. But then in 2006, uh, before I joined, uh, you know, Blue Run Ventures as the country head, I again wanted to go back into investing. I still didn't have access to capital because my father is self-made, very successful, rich person, but I had no money. So I said, now how do I get back into investing? So the only way I could think of was was joining like an angel club. So me and my buddy Prashant, we said, why don't we join one? And we were trying to find something close to our homes in Mumbai. 
And I remember checking the web once, twice, and I said, hey, I'm surprised. I really can't find anything. And we realized that there is nobody there in the market, even in 2006. So we, that's how we co-founded uh, the Mumbai Angel Network. And that's how our journey started. So we started basically private investments in 2001, Angel in 2006, and then the journey continued. I'll talk about that in subsequent questions. Sashi, I've also spoken about how your exposure in a professional setting and Blue Run really helped you when you when you were setting up K-Capital and you spoke about the experience you garnered from your colleagues. But talking about your first investment at K, what was your investment criteria seeing that it was probably the first official deal you'd be making? It was a lot of money at stake from your LPs, etc. And how has this investment criteria evolved since? It's been 11 years since you founded K. So it's been over a decade and if you could reflect on it and tell us a little more about what was going through your mind when you were making that investment back in 2000. Yeah, that's a very fair question. It, it helped immensely because, you know, Blue Run was a billion dollar fund. It had been run for years before I joined it. And therefore the process and systems were very much in place. And so the learnings for me in those six and a half years was absolutely priceless, including the question you asked about best practices on, you know, how to put a document together as to diligence document, as we call it, you know, we call it a BCA, a business case analysis. So that helped me on day one to create a BCA analysis where if I had not worked for a structured fund like Blue Run, I may have figured out, but it would have probably taken me a couple of months, couple of years. So once we did that uh, on day one, we knew some sort of framework in a, in a very, very specific way as to what we need to go after when we're looking for entrepreneurs. Uh, how has that evolved? It's evolved tremendously from 2011 to now 2021 because we're constantly learning about what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur and a successful company. And each of those learnings we want to put into that document and say, okay, we just learned that this is also required or this works in entrepreneur. Let's put that into our deal book as far as our BCA. And of course, this is now no, no more relevant. So let's take this part out. So that's been a constant journey. And even as recently as two weeks back, or maybe three, yeah, two weeks back, actually, when we did our last deal, we actually added one more point that I came up with where I felt we need to be looking at this angle as well before we make an investment. So we added that into our deal framework, as our BCA. So it's constantly evolving and it's never going to stop. So what has been, Sasha, if I can ask, the most difficult investment to date uh, in terms of it could be risk-taken performance, operation, operational challenges you faced, if you can share a couple of them? Well, you know, there's not a single one which has been easy, uh, Ashish. Mm. And I think no VC will be able to tell you a single straight-line company. That's the mm. point of entrepreneurship is there's going to be ups and downs. Uh, you, you're going to see companies that were going nowhere suddenly hit product market fit years after they should have been dead, suddenly become market darlings. You'll see awesome companies crash land. So, you know, each and every company has their own journey. It's all about entrepreneurship and their resilience of entrepreneurs saying, you know what, I need to build something here. I'm, go I'm going to be here for the long haul. I'm going to go through all the, the nooks and crannies to build something great. And those are the best entrepreneurs. And we love to partner with them through those journeys of ups and downs. So there's no specific example. I can talk about any particular company if you want. But frankly, uh, till the last day, and last day for us means when we finally exit, that 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 uncertainty is there in our stomachs every single day. And I'm sure it's there for the best founders as well. 
that look, you can't be complacent. Whenever I've been lucky and fortunate enough to hear Mr. Uday Kotak speak at public functions, he always ends by saying only the paranoid survive. And I completely agree and resonate with what he says because the minute you get complacent, uh, you are that day itself, the game's over for you. And that's a very interesting statement, Sasha, that only the paranoid survive. Looking at your investments, you've called Inmobi your most successful investment and Mintra your most successful exit. But at K, you've made over 129 investments but and 43 exits till date, and you're a sector agnostic fund. Uh, but most of your investments have been in the consumer internet or consumer brand space. So at a sectoral level, what has been the most challenging part for you? Uh, what I mean, what drove your decision to invest heavily in these two sectors as opposed to the other sectors you've partially invested in? Yeah, so I see those facts have now changed quite a bit. Uh, we've done far less than 129. We do about 25 to 30 investments per fund. So let's say 60 investments so far in K, uh, Vishnu Priya, approximately. And we plan to do the same in our third fund, which we're doing this year. We've actually done a lot more over the years in B2B and SaaS, in logistics, and some of our best companies actually come from those categories. That doesn't mean that we have slowed down on consumer. Uh, we have several successful consumer companies, whether it would be before I started K, like Mintra, etc. But in our fund, we've done several consumer companies, uh, sorry, B2B companies. So we've got a nice mix now, and we've got a lot of fintech businesses as well. And I'm happy to talk about any specific company. So, Sasha, what has been the, so if I can pick uh, and continue this thread on, so what has been the reason for investing in fractal analytics at that point in time when analytics was still not well known or uh, 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 as of now? Uh, what were your reasons for investment in fractal analytics? So, actually, sure, I couldn't hear you. Sure. Um, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, so I was asking what has been your reason for investing in fractal analytics at that point in time when analytics was still at a very nascent stage? Yeah, it was definitely before its time. Yes. Without a doubt. But the team was probably, and it's funny, it's my first investment, but the diligence we did on the team, uh, every single person I spoke to said, hey, smartest person I worked with, smartest person I worked with. This is for the founding team. And I knew that analytics logically had to come, but I got what I got wrong was obviously the timing for it. But I felt that as we progressed, the founders were so determined to eventually build a large uh, company. And then, of course, obviously an analytics company. I believe that these are the people I want to partner with forever. As long as they are energetic and believe they can do it, I'm here on their side, right? Because all we can do is be cheerleaders for these entrepreneurs. They're the ones who break their backs every single day. And it took a long, long time. The multiple scenarios happened. You know, we moved. I remember first global business came in Asia. One of the founders moved to Singapore. Then eventually one of the founders moved to New York City. Then we had Lehman Brothers. It obviously, you know, affected all companies, let alone financial services companies. So it took at least till about, if I remember the numbers straight, 2011 or 12, to really start moving. And after that, there's been no stop, right? Because as you know, now data is a new oil. And uh, Fractal has been right in the thick of things. So if you really think about it, it's an incredibly remarkable story because the opportunity cost for the two founders who run the business was very, very high to have spent the first eight, 10 years of their lives building the business when it was very small. Because given their backgrounds, you would agree that they could have been in any job they wanted, traveling the world, 
you know, very comfortably getting very large salaries and would have done very, very well for themselves. The fact that they chose the entrepreneurial path, the harder path was remarkable. And I believe that if they could sacrifice, why couldn't I just wait, uh, you know, along with them on the sidelines? That's what we've done. And even till today, we are shareholders in the company in 2021. And as you know, the business is running incredibly well. How do you see the analytics market shaping up in the next couple of years or next five years? Because everything is data, right? Everything mm. is AI and the company is in the thick of strong, in the thick of things. So it's, it's, there's no limit to where this business can go in the next couple of years. So you plan to still continue hold? Oh, without a uh, doubt. <laughs> no doubt in my mind. Sasha, coming to your interest in uh, technology and like you said, data is the new oil. Your latest investment was in Visa for $1.3 million as per PitchBook data, uh, which is a mental health app leveraging emotionally intelligent AI. Um, it's a very interesting combination of technology and healthcare, something you've invested in previously and also disruptive innovation. With regard to Visa, what was the moat for you as an investor and where do you see this space going of leveraging healthcare with technology as well as artificial intelligence in the space of mental health? So, Visa actually uh, came Vishnupriya through my colleague Vidushi. She really pushed the case and in our fund, our model is that if one of the partners is willing to thumb the table, we agree to let him or her do the deal. And to her credit, she was the one who thumbed the deal on this company. She took responsibility for it uh, and it's done really well. Now, you know, mental health, unfortunately, especially after the pandemic has really come into the limelight, right? People have realized that mental health is, is a problem. It's something that you can't hide behind the doors. It's it's like any other disease. Exactly. Right? We have to be front and center because there's nothing to be ashamed about. Some of the most famous people in the world have had mental health issues. Deepika Padukone, etc. have talked about it, which I appreciate because when celebrities and famous people speak openly about it, Virat Kohli recently talked about his depression. Then other normal people like you and me will feel, okay, why can't we talk about our issues if we do have it? There's no crime. And so Visa has really come in the thick of the storm and has done an incredible job. Just yesterday, we announced a, a Series A investment from a global investor and the founders have moved to Boston. This business is pretty much global now because, you know, this issue is spread across the planet and the attraction is in North America, in Europe, in Asia. So it's truly become a global business and um, it looks set to really explode in the years ahead as, uh, you know, mental health comes into the forefront even more uh, as we speak. So, Sasha, as you are also aware, uh, technology has its own pros and cons. And uh, uh, there has been many numerous startup or failure cases, if I can say. So, where uh, tech companies have over-promised on certain aspects of AI, for example. Or building such system in production is, scaling such system in production is extremely difficult. So, from a fund perspective, how do you separate reality from hype? especially in the new age technology, be it AI, blockchain, or any other aspect, or any other of them? Yes. You know, what happens in our business is we tend to get hype, go into hype. You know, there's always waves. You know, okay, this wave, blockchain wave, this wave, healthcare wave, et cetera, et cetera. So as a fund, we have a rule. We don't want to get sucked into any wave. We do our own POVs. We call it point of views. And we focus on that. 
and we, we proactively go after entrepreneurs and the spaces that we feel are the next big thing. And we have a very logical case with it versus just waiting for the next wave to come, which we feel has always been a bugbear for most species because you get sucked into the next big thing. And before you know it, you know, you put in some capital and frankly, there's no guarantee that space is going anywhere. So we like to make our own point of view and then go after something. Sarun, you have preempted our next question, which was uh, about your third fund. That you, it raised $60 million. And again, as per pitchbook data, we noticed that you had some consistent co-investors like Sequoia India or Kalari Capital. You've mentioned these bubbles or waves that come and go in the VC circle. How do you discuss or do you discuss the merits of companies or these investments with your co-investors before signing the check? If yes, what is the consensus building process like, especially when it comes to companies like Nua or Vaisa, which are outliers, they're not the traditional companies or the traditional models that, you know, the VC uh, funds have been investing in for a long time? Yeah, okay. So we'll take the second question first. So what happened, Mr. Priya, was over the years, we had a model where everyone had to say yes to a deal or I had to say yes to a deal. One of my colleagues came to me one day and said, look, this is not working. We need to have a better system in place. So I went and started evaluating what's the best practice around the world. And we came to something a couple of years back called the thump the table model. What that means is once we finished our diligence on a space, that individual partner, he or she, has right to thump the table and push a deal because he or she has a conviction on the opportunity. He or she has done the homework on the opportunity. The rest of the partnership and other people in the room have not done as much work. They're not vested in that company and they are not going to take accountability for it. That has worked really well for us. Like the example I gave of how Vidushi pushed the deal for Visor and that's how the company has taken off. And even if it had failed, that's fine because, you know, the, she had done her homework, she had pushed on it and it depends on the opportunity. Not every company is going to become the next Visor, right? So we're very clear that the thumb the table model is the only way to go for us as a firm and we will never stop that model. Um, can you remind me of the previous the other question? Sure. So I was asking you that, that since you have a lot of co-investors in companies, uh, we noticed that Sequoia India or Kalari were one of them. Uh, how do you have? Do you have any sort of consensus building with these co-investors? If you know that another fund has uh, invested a stake in uh, a company that you've been considering, and a partner is convinced. Uh, what is the information sharing process like? How do you discuss the merits? Uh, is it a motivator to invest knowing that some other fund has also invested a percentage? Or uh, we're just wondering what the process is like. Well, the process depends uh, company to company and fund to fund. But yeah, of course, we see share ideas, share conversations. We have bi-weekly calls with some of the funds you mentioned. Some we have monthly calls. We share deal flow. We discuss ideas in the ecosystem. Uh, we talk about what we like about particular businesses, get their points of views. So it, it's really great to do that because then you have a point of view and you say, hold on, I thought that point of view was actually making much more sense than what I was trying to say. And hopefully if we have a point of view and it resonates with them, why not? And then of course, to your most specific point on co-investments, I think co-investments is a very important part of our business because venture capital is a very lonely business. And a lot of times when the companies are down, you need a good co-investor with you because, you know, they can help with brainstorming and ideas on how what we can do with that opportunity. They can maybe throw in some more money as well along with us. The variety of value that a co-investor brings to the table. And we have very good relations with pretty much every VC in the ecosystem. We're very proud of that. And we want to continue down that path. 
sure and so sasha there is a trend in the market or if i put it differently um as a startup when you reach series a b c uh, and ultimately the goal is for ipo the founders shares typically dilute right uh, so we are seeing a lot of trend in the market where startups are leveraging debt financing or similar option there there are uh, funds also which are offering similar ways of financing at certain coupon rates etc um do you recommend such transaction for a startup when they are in a journey uh where the capital is required to scale um at whatever speed whatever speed or uh, yeah, is so required answers more nuanced uh, ashish it really depends on the situation hmm. uh, sometimes for example just yesterday i was talking to my partner about one of our companies they've taken too much debt right and they kind of just depending on this debt to kind of tie them through the situation if it's well balanced uh, it can be very useful because you know if you use properly for example obviously it has uh, if say you're doing a 5 million round and you do 4 million equity you could do 1 million debt so your dilution comes lower uh, and so on and so forth but there are also some negatives that you need to be aware of and once so we what we do is we tell the entrepreneur this is what we think of the pros and cons of it and in your circumstance we believe we would do it this way and this is mm. why we believe this and this is the data tells us this now i leave it to you so the founder sometimes say okay got it this actually makes a lot of sense i'll reduce my debt or i don't really need debt right now on the other hand they go with eyes open saying okay we got it but we want to proceed with the uh, debt anyway so again it's literally every single deal when we want to raise debt uh, or not we have take my words back obviously the founder we give them our two bits on that circumstance and that situation in the company which stage it is at so they need to be aware of the pros and cons a lot of times the founders are not as aware of the cons and therefore can get into a soup down the line which uh, which is a bit unfortunate so if you can share some of the cons uh, typically what comes uh, i mean a simple debt. con could be that you know at the end of the day if that debt is due first you know and suddenly you have only 2 months of cash suddenly your company is dead right do you have to pay you you, you got covenants you got uh, you know right commitments to pay off the debt as a particular time particular time frame and uh, you can't raise any other equity capital at that point so i mean it can become pretty hairy at some point if not well managed most founders are smart enough to understand this i mean if not all it's just sometimes they take a bit of a risk thinking they'll figure it out later and that's when they get into a bit of a soup if they don't uh, think through it a little bit more carefully and that's very interesting to note sasha uh taking this conversation one notch higher and uh, we just curious as to what your personal take on this is you've often said that you bet more on the entrepreneur than anything else uh k capital has made two diversity investments so far which were in women founded companies have you noticed a difference between companies which have women at the helm of affairs or uh, as opposed to male doers or in your opinion is gender just a label and nothing more when it comes to the entrepreneurial space because like you said it's picking up the startup ecosystem is booming now but women in the entrepreneurial space is still a far, i mean far they stay far and few so how do you see this gender uh, aspect coming in actually we have done a pathetic job i'm saying k capital uh, i wish you could do more female founders and i wish you could do more at least female not because of anything else but we believe that companies with female founders actually end up doing better co-founders wow wow okay tell us that 
And of course, why would we not want to support women entrepreneurs, right? But for whatever reason, I, I can make any excuse I want that I don't see enough deals with women. So what can I do? And maybe the data will actually prove that out because you see the data deals flowing to us. So the ones we go find, invariably, there are more males by a large percentage. But if you do make an effort, I believe genuinely you will find what you want. It's all about intent. Life is intent. So, for example, uh, last year I decided that I'm going to go, or actually beginning of this year, I want to now bring on board a woman partner. And uh, last year actually, and for a whole year passed by, nothing happened. And I just said, you know, what are we doing? Because, you know, we kept finding, you know, male partners we liked or, or senior executives and we said, okay, let's talk to them. But eventually we said, no, 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 no. We are going to stop the search and just find the best woman. She has to be as good if not better than any man, not because she's a token. I don't believe in token. I believe in, in merit. And we were glad to bring on board a very senior resource at the end of last year, Vinu. And the good news is, I can't mention the name, but we now have our first woman partner as well will join us in August. So that's been just very gratifying for me that once I put my mind to it, then there are people, you just have to look a little harder, but they're awesome. Uh, you know, people who are now joining our team have joined as well. And same thing for companies, right? Uh, it's all about the intent. And I think that's a promise to myself that in our new fund, we will do more women founders. And it's good uh, for business too. So what there's nothing, there's, it's a win-win. Yeah, but just staying on this question for another moment, Sasha, in your assessment, what is it about women co-founders that helps them perform better? Like, why do you say they perform better than male co-founders? No, this is beyond the gender. Worse. It's more about a well-balanced team. Brings okay. value, uh, it's diversity, not just in color, but in thinking through a problem. Women are good at certain things. Uh, women are bad at certain things. That's not the way it works, right? Because it's a human being. It's just the, the different thinking that a woman brings to the table, apart from obviously being a very smart individual herself, and the male brings something else. So together, that thinking comes together to add magic. That's what most people don't realize. Yeah, even data shows that having great women board members is actually very helpful to business. It's not a token that just because the government says put one woman on your board, and people still don't do it. So I'm like, hold on. One is you should be supporting the ecosystem, and on top of that, it's going to help your business. So like, what? I mean, it's like a no-brainer, right? If you think about it. But it's still not happening at the level and speed that we all deserve. And I myself have not done it to the speed, uh, so I can't give lectures to anyone. Got it. Uh, there was one article I was reading, uh, Sasha, where you talked about uh, evergreen funds, mm -hmm. where you have to uh, hand over the investment to some PE fund or something similar after all the hard work you have done. So what sort of things do you see or what sort of transformation do you no. see coming up in the... Evergreen, uh, Ashish, mm -hmm. is very simple. It means mm -hmm. it's, it never closes. Right. right. And actually, in life, if you really want to make money in our business, evergreen funds are the dream. But there are very, very few evergreen funds, which are like, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 15 years. Everything is 10 years. And people say, oh, 10 years, that's too long. <laughs> too long on asset class. 10, 12 years, 2 years extension. Are you kidding me? I need my money back. Uh, now, I just gave the example of Fractal, right? Hmm. It was 2001. What year are we in? 2021, right? Yes. Right? In Mobius 2006. What year are we in? 2021. I'm a shareholder in both these companies. The list goes on. And I have many others. Before I started my funds that I made investments, which are not disclosed right now. That's evergreen. Because that's my own money. Now, my dream is one day to get a pool of capital. Maybe it's K4, K5, K6 from people who don't need the money back. It's long only. 
Now, it's, there are many nuances of how that plays out and how they eventually get their money back. So, I won't bore you with those answers. But many funds are now moving to Evergreen. Now, you know, recently, two years back, Westbridge Capital, which is run by a good friend of mine, Sumir, it's public information, so I don't disclose anything, moved to becoming an Evergreen fund. And, uh, you know, Sutter Hill, which is funded Snowflake, they're an Evergreen fund, if I remember the fact correctly. But too few. We need more. Maverick uh, Ventures in the Bay Area, they're an Evergreen fund. So, so do you have point being if you're an awesome business like what is uh berkshire hathaway it's evergreen right once he's made investments in coke and geico and all those companies they've been 30 40 years holding on to the stocks correct mm-hmm. so why is that different just because they're public business versus us holding on to a younger company through its life cycle of being formed founded going public and then holding on for 20 more years in fact you make even more money because you're coming in at that four five six million valuation and holding on when the company's worth 20 40 60 80 100 billion dollars Mm-hmm. And do you have uh, some data to back it up in terms of the in terms of returns generated in an evergreen fund versus the traditional? It's all over the internet, you can go and check. They're far far more valuable. And you see, even the larger private equity funds like Blackstone, etc. You start reading those articles. I would urge you to read. They are slowly mm-hmm. moving towards long only funds versus the five year cycle. Because what is a private equity model? Private equity model is a fees model. Because if you have 20 billion funds or 10 billion or 5 billion funds, you take 1, 2%, you do the math. Right. Everyone's right. making millions of dollars and you quickly, and it's an IRR game in five years, you give it back and everyone's making a ton of money. Uh, so you don't have to be having a large amount of carry to be very, very wealthy by working in any of these funds. Is there anything wrong with that? No, it's a model that works. People are giving them money. They're the smartest people on earth. But why are they then moving into Evergreen? Slowly, if you notice some of these funds, the KKR, Blackstone, are slowly moving into the Evergreen model. And I started creating teams around it. And because they realized that's how they make money. What is Rakesh Rijunwala? Where is his real money? Is all his long-term investments like Titan and etc. right? That's evergreen. Definitely need a lot of patient investors. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's patient. We talked about the start, right? Yes. And, patience. and, then, and remember the word compounding. People don't realize. All you people are super smart. Why you don't use compounding in your lives? It was simple math. It, uh, it amazes people when I make them do the math on what compounding is. And everyone knows it. Everyone's smarter than me. And then, then use it not to your benefit. <laughs> people don't. That's why there's only one Warren Buffett. There's, a, there's in fact a quote which is quite popular and trending nowadays that uh, why don't people copy Buffett's uh, investment strategy? And he's like, because people don't want to get rich slowly. So that's, that's yeah. well said. Because everyone was a rush, but you know, it's life is about you know deferred deferred things in life. That's what Warren has done, and now it's crazy amounts of wealth. Of course, you're not interested. He did it for the right reasons. He enjoys what he does. That's the most important. Yeah. It's, it's, I call it delayed gratification. You know, everybody yeah. wants to buy the next house or the better car or better whatever holiday. I mean, these are natural things, human. So I'm not trying to judge anyone. I also want a better house or a better car or whatever i don't you get the point but you know if you really want to be in this game delayed gratification is the most important thing patience yes yes sasha one more uh, investment at k which piqued my interest was in hypernova interactive a gaming company and k recently exited by selling their share in halope to nazara technologies for 14.6 crores approximately Gaming as a space is something that we rarely hear of being leveraged in India. 
uh, how nascent do you think this space is and what are the main barriers to entry that keep people from redefining this gaming space in India beyond the, the previously established realm of say Call of Duty or the play of PlayStation ecosystem which is very western in its uh, nature what do you think are the barriers to entry and where do you see this gaming sector going in the future from this year onwards, gaming is ready to explode. I'm an independent director in Nazara. And in fact, we haven't exited from uh, Halaplay because we merged our shares into uh, Nazara. So now we have Nazara stock. And the okay, okay. Gaming is why we only sold a small piece to pay back our investors the principal amount. The rest of it is lying in Nazara shares as we speak. And I believe that uh, gaming is going to be just the tip of the iceberg in our country. And the pandemic has really shown the interest levels in gaming, whether it be esports, whether it be casual games, you can go through the plethora of gaming opportunities. Uh, there's an opportunity in every single segment in our country. And I feel this, this is just starting the game for games. It's going to be a multi, multi billion dollar industry. Um, there's going to be very, very famous gamers coming out of India. Many billion dollar companies are going to come out of gaming, of gaming entrepreneurs. They're going to be gaming billionaires. You can mark my words, it'll take a few years, but like you have EdTech, who thought there'd be EdTech? Uh, you know, entrepreneurs building billion-dollar companies and becoming billionaires themselves, like Baidu's and Academy. But here they are, right? And they their journeys have just started. They were three and thirteen billion, but the game has just started for them. So gaming is going to be the next big thing, in my view. It'll take a while, but if someone's patient, you will make a lot of money. Any particular um, segment in gaming you are more excited about? Really Esports. It's about the entrepreneur because the opportunity exists in every one of those segments. Hmm. Right. You tell me which one, which segment doesn't exist. Some could be a little bit more early for India because, for example, console game you can't do in India is just too expensive. But eventually, a smart entrepreneur will figure out a way to do that also. You know. Sure. Moving on. So, uh, uh, Sasha wanted to ask you. Um, there is a lot of talk. Uh, on SPACs, so especially taking non-profitable companies public through with these blank check companies. And I want to quote some data from Financial Time where uh, they've talked about there are several company shares are down by more than 80% after their listing and the average share price has gone down by 39%. And there were a few articles before uh, in last couple of months where Indian companies were looking to go public through SPAC. So what is your thought process? The idea, SPAC is not a new thing. It has been there for a long time before also, but it has gained little traction for last couple of months. Uh, what do you think about uh, so, Ashish, the last part of your question I couldn't hear because it went to blank. Sure. Uh, so, what do you think about what's your thought process on SPACs? Because there are many conversations going on in the Indian ecosystem, Indian startup ecosystem also, uh, where there are talks to go public through SPAC route. So, what is your thought process on that? So again, it's a more nuanced answer, Ashish. It hmm. really depends on the sponsor of the SPAC and the company you pick. If it's going to be a situation where you know it's a quick money rich get rich scheme uh, and there are many specs like that uh, you've seen the results right you yourself saw the numbers of where they are but yes if, if you see a situation where it's definitely not it in my view it actually makes a lot of sense specs make a lot of sense but because everything that looks exciting and everyone jumped right into the bandwagon and people have got excited before they should and assess properly people have started jumping into companies that should not have been financed many of these companies should not be going public through the back door and therefore, obviously, they'll suffer. And the market's not stupid. They're, they're marking them down to where they should be. Correct? 
but you will see some amazingly successful companies come out of SPACs. And I believe, for example, let's say the Altimeter Capital Grab SPAC. That's mm. a solid SPAC. And it's an awesome group, very well respected. And they got Grab on the table. It's a 40 billion SPAC. So you've got high quality companies like Grab, which is the best company in the in that whole region of Singapore and the whole ASEAN region, willing to go through a SPAC, right? They could have had any option they wanted by going IPO, in NASDAQ, NYSE, anywhere. They could have gone in China, anywhere in the world, people would have taken them. They would have gone to the UK, provided they do a SPAC. So that's your answer. Like anything in life, there's no answer. You know, it's not black and white. It's specific. And you've got some really legitimate, solid companies like um, Grab doing SPACs because it, it's actually a very sensible mechanism for the right company. Mm-hmm. So just to follow up on that, in Indian Indian startup ecosystem, most of the exit has been through acquisitions, right? Um, uh, where do you see this trend moving forward? So good news is we, through K and now, we got our first exit, like I said, to IPO Nazara. You will see Zomato list in India at 8 billion. So it's an amazing IPO. We're also going to see a lot of companies go to NASDAQ uh, as long as they've been Delivec incorporated or, you know, Singapore or wherever. Like, you'll see lots of SaaS IPOs in the next couple of years, in the next 24 to 36 months. So there's lots of liquidity for investors, large exits for uh, investors coming through. And then um, the government's been talking about letting Indian companies go and list in uh, NASDAQ. Even today, there was an article in the papers. Unfortunately, between the ministries, there's a up and down going on. As you can imagine, all the, all this takes time. But it's an unfair, unfair advantage to Chinese companies and other global companies and disadvantage to Indian companies that if you're Indian incorporated, you can't go and list in the US, which hopefully these rules will change and they will allow that. So suddenly you start seeing companies that actually can be valued far more because a global audience may understand the business better or be willing to give them a higher value, they should be allowed to go there. And that should come through. That's what we're all looking for in the industry. So that could be another set of exits happening where these companies are going directly to the US. Sasha, since we've spoken about so many interesting concepts from compounding to delayed gratification, all knowledge concepts, we do know that you you read more than 60 plus books a year. Uh, so this question is based on a book. It's by uh, Simon Sinek called The Infinite Game, where he talks about growth as a counterproductive element to the company's health, especially when he talks about the private equity sector or the VC point of view, as it places tremendous pressure on the company to perform to match projections, since the ultimate aim of the investor is to sell. Do you agree with this viewpoint? Or uh, how do you see this mindset or rather the finite mindset as he defines it playing out in the companies or the founders you have interacted with, which is that, you know, there is a, there are certain healthy limitations to focusing on growth. And what are these limitations like? Yeah, there's always a push and pull between entrepreneurs, boards, you know, what people want and not want. Uh, Investors generally come in for growth. They come in for, you know, to build a company from where it is, stage A to stage B. Uh, think of it like a rail station and then get off, right? And then the entrepreneur continues his or her journey. Yeah, because even though I just said, uh, you know, evergreen, but there are very few evergreen funds. So the point is there is a finite time that that investor has to be on your cap table. So it's the job of the entrepreneur because he or she has picked that investor now to work with him or her. And many times people don't do enough research. I'm always amazed like how we do research to, before we enter a company, 
I strongly believe that entrepreneurs don't do a good enough job of research on the VCs or private equity funds. And some do, and they're very smart, and they do a lot of work. But some, for some reason, don't do as much as say, color is green, let's take it. Now, coming more specifically to your question, uh, to the professor's comments. Yeah, of course, those issues come up. But a good entrepreneur knows how to manage the board, not manage as far as, you know, keep them quiet, but explain the logic between just rampant growth versus building a solid, valuable company. And I very rarely have seen a situation where high quality entrepreneurs are not able to convince the board that this is the right way to do it. And of course, sometimes not everyone's going to be happy. But as long as he or she has the backing of the board, we've seen solid businesses being built out in a sensible way. Of course, we've seen some horror stories too, which I'm not going to talk about. But there are enough examples of people who know how to do this in the sense, in, in the right way. And those examples, I'm sure you know those companies, I'm not going to mention them, are right in front of us. But Sasha, seeing that you've said that a mentor's job is to tell you what not to do more than what to do, uh, without taking names, uh, if you could tell, uh, share an example of one of these horror stories so that somebody who's listening in and is probably facing this uh, dilemma knows what not to do, if not what to do when it comes to convincing the board or uh, solidifying a strategy in their own mind. You know, I guess this is very difficult because... If there's certain board members who are stuck on a way to do things, it just makes life difficult for founders. But a lot of times, you know, founders control companies, right? We don't run those companies. So founders who are smart know that. And they know that at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to be standing in front of the customer, building the business out, and so on and so forth. Now, you know, in the West, you have situations where you take out founders and replace them, etc. India, that's, it's happening, but nowhere near the pace that uh, is prevalent in the West, which has been prevalent for now years and years. So I don't see a problem there. I feel a healthy relationship is you can have a fight with the founder as far as disagreement, as far as point of view. As long as it's done professionally with no intent to be personal, I think that's fine. We've, I've had so many arguments with entrepreneurs, but it's nothing personal. This, this is my point of view. And... At least I believe that I always eventually listen to the founder because I'm not going to go and run the company for him or her. So it's best that they decide what's best for their company versus me telling them what to do. And as far as mentors are concerned, it's it's how to think, not what to do and how to do it. And all that's not the way to do it. Uh, the best mentors are the people who push you to improve your thinking. As, not improve, I take my words back. Is This is how I think about it, this issue. Now you Or, or, or something called just thought, which is I would do it this way or this is how I did it. Uh, I solved the problem this way or I solved, I went about this particular issue this way. Now you decide how you want to do it but at least you get a live example of how I did it. Now it's up to you. I feel that works much better versus telling the founder go do this this way. The best founders are never going to listen to you because people, they're stubborn. That's why they're entrepreneurs. So a, a better way to do it is to say this is what I would do. I leave it to you. Got it. Sasha, so Sasha, so we talked a lot about a startup ecosystem, the trends. I, I what I really wanted to ask you, what are the challenge? Some of the challenges you face as a fund while uh, you uh, in your entire journey till now. What are the aspects? Uh, what are the challenging aspects you face while running a fund? Well, well, there's so many challenges day to day. Whether it be you know you got to um, manage all your your own investors which is LPs as we call them. We have LPs yes. around the world. These are some of the most successful people, some of the largest funds in the world. 
family offices, individuals, um, these are all people who want you know to be aware of what's happening in the business. So we have to keep them constantly engaged with information requests, etc. Uh, some of them will say, oh, why didn't you exit this company? You should have stayed back or not exited it. So you got to keep that whole base of people happy because they're the ones who are going to come in and invest in the next fund as well. And and more importantly, you respect them because they supported you by giving you capital, which is even more important than the fact that they have to come into the next fund to the next fund after that. Second is we have a plethora of uh, entrepreneurs that we fund. Uh, entrepreneurs are mercurial people. That's the fun of working with them in the first place. But, you know, it's never easy ride, right? Uh, to work with an entrepreneur because he or she is a strong-willed person and we have to manage that situation and of course then market dynamics like just like running any other business so it's not like we have some special work we have to do that we should be cribbing about it's like any business we manage it we enjoy it because net see everything in life is net net why do i do this business i love it because i'm dealing with some of the smartest people in the world and they're creating something from nothing from an idea and one fine day it's something that the whole world is using so we are blessed to be just in the vicinity of such human beings. Uh, I'm just so happy and I can't complain. I'm just delighted to be you know, involved with such people who change the world. Many, many fail, but the success itself is trying. So I respect every entrepreneur, even if my money's written off. It's not my money, but the fund's money, because I feel at least a person tried here. Yeah. Life's about trying. Most people only give armchair critics and lecturers. They don't get yes. to the battlefield. Entrepreneurs do. And I think all of us should respect that. You mentioned, you know, many startups, I mean, trying is definitely a key aspect. Uh, you have to try first and then only you will get to know what was the ultimate outcome. I was reading some stats, uh, for example, in the Indian ecosystem, there are approximately 200 or 300 funds, give or take, and approximately uh, more than 40,000 plus startups and not all the startups are able to raise fund. They they had to shut down operation due to insufficient fund, etc. I mean, uh, there is a gap between the the capital. Definitely, there is a lot of capital available per se, but the gap in terms of the funds which are available uh, for a startup. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, right? If you think about, it's all about time and everything is relative. If you think about 2001, when Fractal was raising capital, there was a grand total of like five people. I'm just making up a number. And now in 2021, a younger version of Fractal has the funds you just mentioned, right? 200 funds. I don't know the number, but you get it. So in which era would you rather be born and, and be an entrepreneur? In 2021 or 2001? I would guess to 2021, right? You've got 200 people to go to. So mm -hmm. would we want 400 funds? Yeah, of course. Why not? More the better. And does the ecosystem need it? Answer is yes. But think of how far we've traversed from 2001 to 2021. Or even take 1981 when my father started his company, or you can go back even further and talk about so many entrepreneurs, how they struggle to raise capital. So if I'm in 2021, I have nothing to complain about if I'm an entrepreneur, because there's a lot of money available. And um, you know, if he or she has a good plan, there's going to, like I always say, when I say no to a founder, I say, don't worry about it because it's just my opinion. There's billions of dollars of capital available. I'm sure someone smarter than me will say yes to you and I'll be the one crying. I, of course, we don't cry because we missed something amazing. So go best of luck to you. Um, Sasha, staying on this topic of say the decision that comes to making an investment, the average check size at K is around $1 million, if I'm not wrong. And 
uh, we are likely to go up to three million dollars perhaps but uh, I, i'd like to quote something available on your website that k is a destination for early stage companies to acquire capital for growth now uh, seeing the example you gave earlier that it's all about timing and it's relative do you believe that the feeding of capital continues to remain one of the main drivers of growth if not the main hindrances to it and if that is so if that's not the case and how have you seen this understanding of capital change from simply check sizes to something which is more intangible over the years of your investment experience so capital now you know like i said in the last question now there's pretty you know lots of capital is available so if you're a reasonably quality entrepreneur you will get that capital so it's become a commodity it's just green cash smart founders are saying you know what else can this fund do for me why should i take their money because i've got three offers so every fund is doing something interesting to get uh, you know people to take their money the, the better entrepreneurs and that's why those funds are all doing well would be do is we have something called 0 to 1 the 0 to 1 framework of about 12 things we work with with the entrepreneur in their life cycle with us and it really depends on the status and uh, situation of the company as to which of those 12 initiatives we pick we believe that this helps us uh, and helps the company a lot and differentiates us from just anyone giving capital and that's something that we've learned over the years saying hold on why is this entrepreneur not doing this initiative why is he not doing this initiative it worked really really well in that company why can't it work here and a lot of entrepreneurs who have been funded over the last couple of years have appreciated this these uh, series of initiatives we've done for them on the ground level is this a zero to 1 based on the peter thiel book uh... No, no. I, it's a, I love the book, of course. I think nobody who's read it has anything bad to say about it. Lots of learnings. Peter is amazing. Very clear thinking person. It's not, but it's the same thing, right? It's we're coming in at that zero stage when the entrepreneur is many a time just starting his or her company. Yeah. And paperwork is also just barely inked, and then we're coming into the company. We come in that early, where we call it pre-seed, not even seed. and then uh, that journey from 0 to 1 which means at least get it ready for series a yeah is b is what we are good at or we hope we are good at or at least we seem to understand to some extent again a con- continuous learning journey we keep adding things to this initiative but these are the things that we currently work with with our founders got it so sasha do you plan to any time in the near future you plan to move for example from the current early stage capital to let's say uh, into different segment of expansion capital late stage capital or you want to stick to your current theme yes fair question uh, ashish the answer is yeah why not you know how this business works is that you need people to be very good at a particular line of business and uh, you can move so the idea is say we want to go into growth capital then do we have the best growth capital team in the market currently we don't because we're so focused on pre-seed and seed right so we can't say we want to go into growth and we'll have the same team no one's going to give us any money and you know if they did we will lose all their money for them but at some point if we want to do it why not like let's take an example of uh, blackrock you know blackrock decided they want to go into public ma- into private equity so they mm-hmm. hired a crack team if i remember someone from general atlantic uh, who was a partner there and he came on board and now built it strategy and team for them now time will tell how well they do but clearly by picking up if for example they pick the, the right person they have a interesting business to be built out let's say blackstone which is known for very large ticket size right, as both of you know they recently 
built out a growth team and they were the first investors in Bumble and that's done incredibly well for them. But because they picked the right person, Schwarzman picked the right person, at least from what I can tell from reading articles about him and his performance and his team's performance. So the answer is, uh, who knows where K will end up. But if we decide to go somewhere, we need to get the best people in that category and uh, we can 100% win. Sasha, in the last couple of years, you've also seen a lot of Chinese investment firms settle their roots in India, especially when it comes to taking advantage of this booming uh, startup ecosystem. And the recent acquisition by Geo of an Israeli tech company to help them drive up the growth for one of their products just makes me wonder whether the VC stage in, in uh, whether the VC segment in India is truly going global, or do you think this this too is just um, a phase which is going to phase out. Um, do you mean, so maybe I'll answer the Chinese question first. Yeah, of course, they're Chinese funds. Of course, as you know, there's some governmental issues and therefore everything is on hold right now. But whatever interaction we've had with the Chinese funds, we've been very um, enthused. We found great value uh, in uh, our discussions with our colleagues from these Chinese funds. They come with a lot of learnings from China. There are many businesses that earlier we used to benchmark only with the US, but now we realize that there's quite a few similarities with India and China. And therefore, we love to benchmark that and see how things are going there and then look at businesses in India and see if there's an opportunity. So, you know, we are not going to comment on, you know, political issues. Hopefully, uh, peace prevails and, you know, Chinese funds are allowed to come in in a sensible manner at the right time. As far as your next question is concerned, Indian the Indian ecosystem of venture capital is not even touched the tip of the iceberg. So you will see for sure, Vishnupriya, tons and tons of more funds uh, of all kinds from all kinds of countries coming to this country over the years. And we look forward to that, actually. Great. Um, I think we have taken a lot of your time, Sasha, but to wrap it up, uh, we can keep going on and on. <laughs> uh, so... Um, what has been, uh, I know you are an optimist, Sasha, So, but still, I'll try to ask you this question. From your experience till now, uh, uh, all from your all ex investment experience, uh, is there anything uh, you think you would have done differently? Well, you know, I, I always believe no point, you know, thinking about the past. Learn and move on. I think we, I could have done so many things differently, Ashish. I can't even, I can put a huge checklist and send it to you and say, list laundry list. Actually. <laughs> think, oh God, I could have done this differently. The idea is, is it too late to change? Some, you know, is there hope for tomorrow? Can uh, some of the changes be made that I should have done earlier uh, be done now? The answer is yes for most of those things. So, therefore, I'm uh, in a mental state of mind where I'm reasonably happy. And I'm constantly trying to improve those things where if I should have done something, why have I not done it? Can I do it quicker and faster and implement it better? And that's what keeps me going. Saying, okay, we made that mistake. We let that entrepreneur go. We, we should have closed or we should have done this differently. Next time that situation comes, can we now not make that mistake again? A lot of times people also don't learn from what they did right. So they'll do something right and guess what? The next time they won't do it again. And you're like, hold on, what, what the hell just happened there? Why don't you do it again? And no answer. Like, okay. So, you know, one thing is to learn from mistakes, but people have to also learn from their, what they've done correctly. And both have to be looked at carefully. And so we kind of look at that and say, okay, why did this company go well for us? What, what happened here? Why can't we go back and look at similar 
scenarios for the next investment we make versus uh, you know going out ground up again and looking at something fresh uh, the new the next time so this is a constant evolution for for us uh, ashish is never going to end but nothing to cry about sasha if i may there's just one query that i had in mind your trade more than reading numbers it involves reading people and over the years your observations that you've made about entrepreneurs have either cost you money or got no profits uh, what are the few what is that one skill if not more that you really wish an entrepreneur would inculcate starting today which you think would not only contribute to their success in their venture but also in their personal lives i think i, I believe a trait uh, conscientious be conscientious of your commitments of whatever you say and do you know, conscientious people win in life i believe you know and i we look at that trait among many other traits before we invest in an entrepreneur and uh, we've seen that the people who have been the most conscientious have eventually built something very interesting wonderful sasha to wrap it up i just have a little fun question for you do you invest in cryptocurrency <laughs> <laughs> not really we're just in the process of getting some interns on board to do a detailed study for us but as you can see the crazy volatility uh, you need special already my hair is pretty much 80% white so i think i'll be white if i did crypto but i feel it's an interesting period so let's see wonderful thank you so much sasha for your time it was pleasure having you really enjoyed our conversation and yeah look forward to your future investments no i'm thankful for the invite and i really appreciate young people like you taking out the time to build this out because you know you're getting in front of so many interesting people not people like me but i'm saying the people who are listening really because those are the people who are going to be the next entrepreneur and the next big thing is going to come from people listening and i look forward to funding some of those people who are listening so best of luck and most importantly all of you out there be safe